0: Today on Maine Calling, the pleasure and culture of snowshoeing. For more than a century, Norway, Maine was known as the snowshoe capital of America. Back in the day, the western Maine town was home to four major snowshoe manufacturing companies. Even though those companies are long gone, Norway still embraces the snowshoe, hosting the annual snowshoe festival every February. The event includes snowshoe races and a fashion show. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Main Calling, as part of our Passions and Pastimes series, we explore the world of snowshoeing. Once a critical means of transportation in snowy climates, now most people snowshoe for pleasure. And although most people wear lightweight aluminum frame, composite, or foam snowshoes, some still seek out or even make beautiful wooden ones. Main Calling is just ahead.
1: Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org.
0: I'm Jennifer Rooks and this is Maine Calling. Such a simple concept, a big flat contraption that allows you to walk across the snowy landscape. Snowshoes were born of necessity, but have become a way to have fun, exercise and explore. So we're gonna learn why snowshoeing is a main thing, how to get out and enjoy it, and um, a little bit of history and culture as well. This is part of Maine Calling's Passions and Pastimes series. Joining me this hour, Erica Johnson, who is guest experience and media coordinator for Maine Hudson Trails, Brian Terrio, master snowshoe maker with Terrio's Snowshoes based in Fort Kent, and Lee Dassler, development director for Western Foothills Land Trust, which holds the annual snowshoe festival in Norway, Maine. We invite you to join the conversation. Do you like to snowshoe? Where do you like to go? Did you grow up snowshoeing or learn later on? Send us an email, a brief email, talk at mainepublic.org. Post a comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. Six six. Thank you all for joining us, Brian. I'm going to start with you. I understand you've been making snowshoes for decades, and um, and you know a lot about the history of snowshoes. I very briefly learned. I did a little searching this morning and learned that the earliest snowshoe that they think uh, ever found is from Italy from 3,700 BC. Uh, so, so snowshoes have been around for a while.
1: Yes, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, there, I think there's uh, more history on snowshoes than anybody can imagine. They keep finding uh, stuff. Uh, the, the earliest I've heard of so far was uh, at the bottom of Italy, this one guy picked up uh, what looks like a, a round little Paris, uh, just a one snowshoe. And uh, they said it was like uh, 6,000 years old. Because there was wood involved, they could uh, date it back there. And was very interesting, uh, had a main strand, which all snowshoes uh, today that are uh, wooden rawhide have a main strand. So that was very interesting how they knew that the pressure of all your foot uh, on the main strand had to be built a certain way.
0: So we, but we know here in um, uh, on our side of the Atlantic um, that um, not just the Wabanaki people, but indigenous people um, in very many snowy places had their own snowshoes.
1: Yes, they, there's so many types and shapes. I mean, uh, people uh, didn't have the, the way to communicate so much, so they had to be creative and inventive. And that's why I think we have so many different styles and ways. But I think they had a little idea because most snowshoes are uh, are weaved a three uh, three ways. So it's uh, very interesting that they change some things in sizes and shapes, but the three way weave is still there and is still there today because i think of the strength and uh the look and it doesn't move your rawhide in in the center or the ends as much it kind of controls that if you wouldn't do that they would kind of loosen really easy and then you'd have holes and, and it wouldn't stand up very long All
0: right. And before I move on to Erica and Lee, I have to ask you, Brian, with all the contemporary snowshoes, with all the modern technologies that go into snowshoe making, what is it for you about the old fashioned wooden snowshoe? Why do you continue to make those? Why do you find that people buy your books about how to build them themselves? What is it about the old fashioned snowshoe that makes it so magical?
1: Well, I think what happened was there was people back then that were uh, master snowshoe makers and they had a good uh, grasp on stuff, but they had problems bending the wood and they didn't understand a few things and throughout the years, they didn't evolve into heavier people with packs and uh, easy to walk with and That's why we kind of examined a lot and repaired a lot. And we figured out we have to evolve, stay to the basic, but evolve to something strong and durable. And that's what we uh, created and uh, something that will last. I think in the past, most snowshoes, believe it or not, were made temporary. You know, they were hunter and gatherers and they'd move around. So, they they'd leave their snowshoes and they they wouldn't bring them with them because it it only took them uh, a week to make a pair of snowshoes or less so they had plenty of time on their hands but they didn't want to drag a pair of snowshoes uh year round just for the winter all
0: right well i'm gonna uh bring us a little closer in history with you lee you um um, Norway, Maine, I understand, was known as the snowshoe capital of the world for a long time, starting in the mid-1800s. Tell us about Norway's heritage and um, the connection to snowshoeing there. And Thank this you. is Norway, Maine, not Norway, the country.
2: This is Norway, Maine. I, this has always fascinated me. I've lived in Maine for 30 years. I come from the Midwest, um, at St. Louis. We don't do a lot of snowshoeing but the moment I landed in Norway, Maine, I went into Woodman's store and bought my first pair of not American made, but I knew that was part of what I had to do. And then I started researching and finding out that Norway itself was America's snowshoe town for the p- p- preponderance of the 20th century. We had five, um, at least five industries running simultaneously here. We. We built the snowshoes, Melly Dunham built the snowshoes to send Perry to the North Pole. Uh, Snowcraft built the snowshoes that sent Admiral Byrd to the South Pole. We outfitted the US troops for World War II, building 60,000 pairs at the Snowcraft facility in Norway. They hired 100 people. They had a list, we have the, the Advertiser Democrat ad, they were hiring 100 people to come in in one day to, um, to work that on that team. Also the snowshoes for the British troops and the French troops were made here. The H.H. Hosmer family that had four generations of snowshoe builders in our town built the snowshoes for the U.S. government in the First World War. So it was incredibly important. As Brian was talking about, it's changed now. Now we think of snowshoes almost as entirely recreational They're still used quite a bit by anyone who's in the maple syrup industry, of course, and foresters. But for most of us, we just want to run and have fun. But historically, it was to be able to sustain your family, to be able to hunt in the winter, to be able to manage your forest, manage your your maple syrup. And then when it came along to these world wars, it was to be able to access lands um, in a safe way on top of the snow. So it's fascinating to me. Right now, you can't buy a snowshoe on Main Street in Norway, Maine. That's the sad thing. We need more Bryans around to be making beautiful snowshoes for us.
0: Oh, but Norway still celebrates that heritage, not this coming weekend, but next weekend, Uh, weekend. the Snowshoe Festival happens. It looks like a lot of fun, Lee. And um, um, have you participated in, for example, the snowshoe race? Uh, What's it like to try to run in a snowshoe?
2: Oh, you haven't lived until you've run 10K in snowshoes. I've got to tell you, Jennifer, Um, (laughs) it's really really something. Um, So now, of course, snowshoe manufacturers, some are making running snowshoes, and that's a very popular sport across the country and probably the world. So there's several manufacturers and there's lots of sort of teams that get together and, and practice running. It's a good cross training for those who like to run when we have dry land in front of us. Um, takes a little bit more energy to run. I snows. bet. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but there's always the promise of hot chocolate at the end of it. So that's that's a really good thing. Some well, and there are shoes. other
0: fun events, right? I mean, you have a fashion show, which, um, well, let's just say
2: it's not probably going to get exported to Paris or New York anytime soon. Right? Right. It's, um, it started out as a traditional snowshoe fashion show. So as Brian was talking about with your beautiful club woolens, wool hats and wool coats and the old wooden snowshoes and just see how people could regale themselves. And now it's taken on a different life and it's a lot of different kinds of fashions on snowshoes. So it's very, that's very fun. We also do games. We have a tug of war on snowshoes and we do kids games, egg and spoon and musical chairs on snowshoes. Um, and there's last year we just introduced yoga on snowshoes or what we like to call Snoga. And Kat Larson does that for us. And it's a 40 minute standing practice on snowshoes and everyone loved it. So, Oh my goodness, snow the modern age. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Erica Johnson at Maine Hudson Trails. Who do you find is interested in snowshoeing? What, who's, who are the um, people interested in trying it? Who are the people who are passionate about it?
3: everyone i'll be honest um we have a lot of backcountry trails so there's a variety we say we get a lot of skiers i would say the other half there's a fair amount of snowshoers it's extremely accessible to all folks um it prevents you from sinking in the snow so you can travel longer distances people go between our huts on snowshoe trips they come up for a lunch it's something the whole family can do it's something that you know, a group of, a group of folks can do. It's a very accessible sport. So someone that's not a skier, doesn't quite have the balance or they're more of a hikers and they want to get out in the winter. You're not really limited by what you can do with, with the snowshoes. Um, throwing it back a bit growing up, I know my father had a pair of those big wooden teardrop and rawhide wooden snowshoes. That was my first real introduction to snowshoes you would go out them in the field walk the the fence for the animals so i first really found them for like a working snowshoe and then uh, as i got more into the outdoors in maine it turned into they became tools for winter hiking tools for exploring They were less of a work item so Pretty much any aspect of snowshoeing will take you places in the winter. You might not be able to go on skis, you might not be able to go just walking normally. Uh, it just opens up a new a new world and people are very excited about it. It's a very accessible sport and it's not a very expensive sport to get into.
0: So, Erica, you said it's very accessible. How easy is it? I'm I'm suspecting that there are listeners right now rolling their eyes and saying, Yeah, right um um it's it's not as easy as it looks what would you say to them
3: um i would start out i know so we groom our trails and we have some backcountry trails that we will create paths for so that's a great place to start initially you'll get experience walking in snowshoes you have a different stance when you walk you have superior grip than you would on boots So it will, it does take a little bit getting used to, I wouldn't go out in two feet of snow and have that be your first powdery snowshoe experience. You'll definitely work up a sweat on that. I would start on some trails in your area, get accustomed to it, and then you can move on to some deeper snow and see how that treats you.
0: All right. Well, we are talking about snowshoeing in Maine. Are you a snowshoeing aficionado? Give us a call 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or join us on Facebook or Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks and you're listening to Maine Calling today. This is part of our Passions and Pastime series. We are talking about snowshoeing. My guest, Brian Terrio, a master snowshoe maker with Terrio's Snowshoes. Lee Dasler serves as development director for Western Footlands Land Trust, and that is going to host the annual snowshoe festival in Norway, Maine, a week from tomorrow. And Erica Johnson, Guest Experience Coordinator for Maine Huts and Trails. You can share your comments and questions, family stories about snowshoeing, personal stories. Send an email to talk at mainepublic.org, comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. I have an email here from Veronica. Veronica says, I have my grandfather's snowshoes from when he was a guide in Greenville back in the late 50s and early 60s. I have busted one of the leather bindings and would love to have them both replaced. Can someone point me in the right direction, please? Brian, I suspect you can.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I do make and uh, sell bindings. Uh, yeah, they, you want a good set of bindings? Uh, Uh, leather, uh, so it doesn't hurt the rawhide. Uh, Some people are putting on other kinds of bindings on uh, uh, rawhide uh, snowshoes, and I I recommend putting a little piece of leather. Don't put hard plastic or anything else without putting some kind of leather to protect. uh, this, This rawhide is very sensitive. A lot of people don't realize. If you get it wet, You got to let it dry. You just can't use it wet. Uh, Wet rawhide is uh, not only does it deteriorate uh, really fast because it's not processed. It's not leather. It's not processed in any way. Just the flesh is uh, removed and the hair is removed. And that's why it's called rawhide. Not treated in any way. It's not leather.
0: Okay, and, and Brian, if, if he wants to have somebody else fix them, um, can he send them to you? Can he send them to any other snowshoe makers in Maine?
1: There's a few other people that fix. fix them. I fix uh, them, and I, I try to get people to fix their own, and I'll sell them the information and uh, the parts needed rawhide or other things they possibly would need
0: all right we have an email here from bill my late dad a finn worked at one of the norway factories in the 1930s i still have a pair of those giant bear claw snowshoes that he made wonderful to walk in but impossible to run in so that's so interesting lee i saw you nod that um uh, bill's father was finnish is was that usual for that era
2: well we have a very strong finnish american culture over here, um, mostly centered in West Paris, Maine. So there's quite a bit of fins in these in these woods, which is really wonderful. Um, And it's absolutely accurate. You do not want to run in bare paws. You don't actually want to run in any of the old wooden ones um, in a race. They're just not going to work for you, which I wanted to talk a little bit about that. with the newer snowshoes, they're a little—they're quite a bit more adaptable to the changing climate that we are finding ourselves in now. We tend to have um, more ice, less huge fluffy dumps of snow. Brian may have them up there in Fort Kent, but we're not getting the big dumps that even 30 years ago, when I lived here, um, when I first moved here, we used to have. Uh, we used, i used to snowshoe to my laundry line out in my backyard because the snow is so thick. Do that maybe now if you wanted to but you wouldn't really wouldn't need to um so the newer snowshoes tend to have claws underneath them they're going to be able to provide you with quite a bit of grip not only for running but for safe safe walking and safe walking on ice and that can be a, a really helpful thing but the historic ones didn't have that perry admiral perry did not need big ice snowshoes he needed things to keep him on type of the on top of the heavy snows
0: We'll go to Andrew calling from Poland. Hi, Andrew. Go ahead.
2: Hi. Yeah, um, very interesting. So
4: um, I have a pair of wooden snowshoes that I bought 40-odd years ago when we first moved to Maine. Um, Something I've heard in the past is the new aluminum snowshoes are very nice um, and they'll last you a lifetime, but the old wooden snowshoes will last you generations, um, Mm -hmm. which I've always appreciated that statement.
0: Well, thank you, Andrew. And you know, you're not the only person who's a big fan of the old ones. Um, here's an email from Patty snowshoeing. You can go almost anywhere. Don't need a packed groom trail to get away from the crowds where it's quiet. See wildlife and the beauty of nature. She writes in Fort Kent one year, my sister from downstate came up to visit. She had oval aluminum snowshoes rather short. My teenage son and I had wooden ones. Mine were the long oval. We called them bear paw up there. My son had the very long teardrop with a long tail. My son and I took turns breaking trail in the deep snow. After 40 minutes, my sister could go no longer. She was still sinking up to her thighs in the deep snow. The style of snowshoe matters. All of our guests are nodding. Um, Brian, you you are probably thrilled to hear that from Patty.
1: Yeah. And and a lot of people don't realize Uh, especially with wooden snowshoes, that there's uh, specific ways of using it. I'd say there was at least 10 ways. I'll give you some examples. You can hop on snowshoes if it's deep snow. You can kind of glide on the snowshoes uh, depending on how deep it is. And there's uh, many little tricks that, when you use snowshoes uh, can very well help you, like how you distribute your weight as you take a a step. So a lot of people, they walk on snowshoes, but they actually, if, if you're paying attention to exactly what you're doing and you know what you're doing, you can move along pretty good at a certain pace and you're breathing and exercise before you walk on snowshoes you don't and be prepared and take breaks but the different types of snow and how hard it is and how you maneuver your body makes a big difference how you enjoy and uh, get around on snowshoes
0: Uh, erica what are some of the safety considerations what should people think about um when they're headed out
3: well, with all all travel that you're going to be doing in the winter, I'm a firm believer you should always be layering correctly with your apparel. You will work up a sweat snowshoeing, so that is something. Don't overdress. You're going to sweat, and then it'll cool down. So I I layer accordingly. Don't get overheated. And I I always bring a little pack that has, you know, some snacks, maybe emergency hand warmer. Like I said, you will you will heat up. Just remember when you stop and have that break at the overlook you want to check out, you will you will cool right down. Um, but I, I do agree with what both Lee and Brian said. There are different, if you're doing really specific conditions, there are different snowshoes that will treat you better. Um, icier, more packed rails, the wooden snow snowshoes, they don't give you any grip. So that probably wouldn't be a good bet. If you're going out in deep snow, you want a nice big snowshoe that'll give you give you uh, spread out your weight. So it's also just being aware where you're going and kind of when you buy your snowshoe or, or rent them, have, have a general idea of where, where you think you'll be going out and dress right and use the right equipment for your trip.
0: All right. And Erica, I understand you have more than one pair of snowshoes personally.
3: I do. Yes. <laughs> um, Are you going to face I've, up to I how a many you uh, So I, I kind of, I guess I call it two and a half pairs. So I have a pair that I use just kind of a short uh, metal frame, molded plastic, easy on binder, you know, binding that I use. And that's just for going around, going around, you know, the field, the yard, anywhere that it's kind of a quick trip. I have a second pair that is a lot lighter and has more flex. That's the one I use when hiking. So if you're off camber on some more packed trails doing elevation changes, you get better grip. And then I have a pair, they're kind of called snow skis. Uh, They're basically a big, fat ski that's very short that I kind of use as with uh, skins on the bottom. It's a hybrid ski snowshoe that I use. That's what I use primarily in the deep snow. Um, Don't have a pair of wooden snowshoes. My father still has those for uh, for his
2: neck of the woods, but uh, so not yet.
0: And Lee, you wanted to
2: jump in earlier. Go ahead wanted to say a little something about, um, and this relates to different sizing of snowshoes to different people, but our magnificent early snowshoe manufacturer, maker, Melly Dunham, who started making snowshoes in the 1870s and makes them through to until he died. he was not only, and he's the one who made the, the equipment for Admiral Perry. We have the list in Maine um, of Admiral Perry's team their height, their weight, and Mellie made the snowshoes for each person accordingly, specific to that person's weight and height. I believe um, some of those documents are in the Arctic Museum at Bowdoin College. They do have some Mellie Dunham snowshoes there that were made for the ex- the, that um, expedition. And Mellie also was not only a master snowshoe shoemaker who taught Walter Tubbs how to make snowshoes. And some of you may have Tubbs snowshoes. Well, Tubbs was born in Norway, just north of Melly Dunham on Crockett Ridge Road and learned from Mellie and then continues on and Tubbs exists to this day. Um, but um, Mellie, I want to talk about was also a master fiddler and won a huge competition, fiddle competition in Lewiston, Maine, which brought him sort of to the surface beyond just local renown. And he was invited with his wife for a fully tripped pay, paid excursion to Dearborn, Michigan to play for Henry Ford, who was an advocate of folk music. So it was this huge deal. Everybody in town turned out to ex- escort Melly and Graham Dunham to the train to get to Michigan. And then on the way back, they went to New York. He was in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Boston Globe. <laughs> Every, all the papers had information about Melly Dunham playing for Henry Ford and the, the beautiful music he played. So part of our Snowshoe Festival has always been to have a contra dance the night before in the very hall where Melly Dunham used to perform. So that's going to be on Friday the 16th from 6 to 8 p.m., a live Contra Dance. And then the Snowshoe Festival is at Robert's Farm Preserve in Norway on Saturday the 17th. Great. And we and know we're going to be able from- to see Jennifer Rooks running. In snowshoes, right? (laughs) No, you won't
0: see that. Um, But um, (laughs) um, you have an email here from Marcy, and this is related. Marcy writes, when you come to Norway for the Snowshoe Festival, come see the snowshoe display at the Norway Museum and Historical Society. You can find us on Main Street in the direction of the lake. So you can see Admiral Peary's at Bowdoin, but you can see a whole lot of other snowshoes at the Norway Museum and Historical Society. I'm going to go to Daniel, who's calling from Norway. Hi, Daniel. How are you?
4: Hello. Hi, this is Daniel Snipe. I'm the executive director of Lights Out Gallery. Um, I'm a big, I volunteered a couple of times at the Snowshoe Festival and I'm a two-time winner of the fashion show.
0: Oh, um, congratulations. But, oh, yeah,
4: thank
3: you. <laughs> um, but uh, Lights Out Gallery uh, is a nonprofit that purchased this snowshoe factory in Norway um, last, the beginning of last year. And we have been working on renovating it through volunteers and grants um, and are hoping to open it as a community center with a co-working space, uh, dance studio, an art gallery, as well as a wood shop. And trying to keep that history of makers in Norway alive and also kind of preserving this, the history of this snowshoe manufacturing.
0: Well, that's terrific. Thanks so much for calling in, Daniel, and good luck to you and to your group. Uh, lots happening in Norway, Lee.
2: It's a, it's a hopping place and Daniel, you'll have to meet Brian after this call because Brian wants to come and and build some snowshoes in the lights out gallery, which would be so wonderful. It'd be really great.
0: Um, Let's see here. Gigi on Facebook writes, these are one, and she has posted a photo on Facebook, which of course, this is the radio, so you'll just have to imagine. These are one (laughs) of two pairs of five foot long snowshoes we bought at an army surplus 44 years ago as our wedding present to ourselves. They are great for breaking trail in deep snow. Not easy for tight turns. I have modern ones too. Love snowshoeing on my land right out my back door. Boy, um, Brian, uh, how common are five foot long snowshoes?
1: Well, we, we make those They're long cross country or we call them Alaskan or pickerel. Uh, they bridge across little brooks over a couple of trees together and, and stuff over bodies of water. It works really, uh, well. And the thing is, is again, what are you using them for? How big are you? How much you weigh? Um, you know, all those things uh, pertain to certain things because, uh, and then the older ones, if they're wider than uh, 12 inches there, you got a problem. You you got to stay around uh, 11 and a half inches, 10 inches. So then you can walk comfortably. That makes a world of difference uh, in the deep snow. Mm.
0: An email here from Carl. Formerly, I lived in New Gloucester from 1962 to 2023. As a kid and teenager in the late 60s and through the 70s, it was put on your snowshoes or cross-country skis and travel for miles through the woods across feet of snow. Now there is so little snow in New Gloucester, you don't need snowshoes. There's only enough snow to cross-country ski a few weeks a year. Lee was talking about this, talking about how climate change is um, really altering the situation. Erica, what about at the trails you maintain at Maine Hudson Trails? Um, I know that you guys weren't around in the 60s and 70s, but in the time that you've been open, have you noticed a shift in um, the number of weeks a year people can go snowshoeing?
3: Yeah, so I've been at Maine Huts for a little under two years and I, I moved up to the Kingfield area from, I was actually living in Portland for the past, I was like 20 years. Um, part of the reason I moved was uh, I there was we didn't get snow anymore on the coast. You know, we between my husband and I, uh, fat bikes, Nordic skis, snowshoes. Um, so I mean, right now we have a really good snowpack. You step off the trail, you're sinking above your knees. We groom and pack all of our trails; they're all free to use. I have seen photos from earlier, in, uh, we're on our, our 15th year at Maine Hudson Trails, and I have seen earlier photos where the snow is quite prolific. So there is an o- obvious uh, lessening of snow. Um, I do feel that we tend to also, and you probably have experienced this too, tend to get a little more rain mixed in when I think it used to just be all snow, uh, more historic large rainfalls. But the pocket that we're in <clears throat> is one of the wonderful little hidden gems in Maine. I feel that we still get phenomenal snow. Um, so I do feel for the rest of Maine, it's definitely changing. And you do have to travel more to be able to experience, I guess, what, what folks were, were used to, say, 20, 30 years ago. But it is a changing environment. And snowshoers, you have to kind of adapt. You find the places you want to go, change up the style if you're looking for more grip. Um, be willing to explore the state a little more.
0: An email here from Bruce. I am of Norwegian ancestry. I grew up snowshoeing and cross-country skiing and in fact we would make our own cross-country ski trails by first snowshoeing through the woods to set a good base to pack it down. I'm now a land surveyor in Maine and from time to time we still need snowshoes to walk into the backcountry to get work done. I still have my 50-year-old pair of wooden snowshoes that at some point I will put up on the wall of a camp fearing I might break them if I use them. Um, So I'm thinking, Brian, people are very sentimental about these old snowshoes. These do not go uh, to the dump.
1: Right. They are coveted. (laughs) Yeah, and and they're biodegradable, by the way. But uh, yeah, the thing is, once they get so old they do get kind of brittle some of them because they weren't taken care of as they should have been a lot of people don't realize that you got to take care of your snowshoes you got to put them in the right places and you got to keep them away from these animals that like to chew on rawhide or wood and i'll tell you one big clue that Our snowshoes compared to a lot of other uh, snowshoes is we pre-stretch our rawhide in the center. So you get a bounce when you walk and it kind of throws the snow off. So that is another big key thing that people don't realize that uh, there is a difference uh, of different snowshoes
0: we'll go to steve calling from camden hi steve go ahead
4: hi <clears throat> excuse me hi back in the day i used to uh, travel quite a bit uh, recreational wilderness travel multi-day snowshoeing and towing a narrow toboggan trail I made number trips with alex and alex and uh, uh the conivers alexandra conover and garrett and it was a lot of fun and through the years i've accumulated about seven different pairs of snowshoes that uh, great for all the different types of terrain. Is anybody still doing that sort of thing? Wilderness travel and multi day trips on snowshoes?
0: Do any of you know the answer?
1: I think there is. Uh, different places you can go uh, use their trails, and guides are starting to give trips and walk on snowshoes. I hear all kinds of different things all over the place. Uh, it's amazing.
3: Hmm, yeah, maybe you know, so- right here at it- at Maine huts we do you can do hut to hut trips and we have folks we offer both self service and full service we have folks that'll bring tow behind sled and they'll go and you snowshoe hut to hut can be anywhere from 2 miles to 12 miles between the huts so we do that through through mm-hmm. March uh, March 24th uh, it is uh, a unique adventure you can do we get skiers snowshoers and fat bikers so yep definitely definitely still still out and about there Steve
0: thanks for your call Uh, we are going to take another quick break we're talking about snowshoeing in Maine we'll be right back welcome back I'm Jennifer Rooks you're listening to Maine calling our topic is snowshoeing tell us about your snowshoe adventures with me Lee Dassler with Western Foothills Land Trust which organizes the Norway snowshoe festival Erica Johnson with Maine Hudson Trails and Brian Terrio with Terrio's Snowshoes. Join our conversation. If you're quick, 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. Um, I'm going to go really quickly to a Facebook post. Jacob writes, I've noticed when buying modern aluminum shoes, people get undersized shoes by using their body weight for sizes, but they should be going by their, for, they should be going by their weight, plus the weight of all their gear. Erica, is that how you size people when they rent at Maine Hudson Trails? Like y- y- everything you're going to carry plus your body weight.
3: Exactly. Um, in a, a previous, before I moved up here, I worked for a certain big retailer in Southern Maine selling snowshoes. And that will you all, yeah, that's exactly what you're, you're sizing for combination of where you're going. Uh, if you want floater traction and how much gear you're going to be bringing.
0: We'll go to Vaughn, who's calling from York. Hi, Vaughn. Go ahead.
5: Hi. Um, my name's Vaughn. And, uh, I was You're talking about different types of snowshoes, and I have two pair of my grandmothers from when she was a teacher north of Winnipeg, Canada. And uh, her snowshoes look like uh, lace curtains. It's a really, really, really fine pattern. And I have a pair of regular wooden bear paw's, and I always asked her why the hole was much smaller in hers than in mine. And she said up there, the snow was like talcum powder. So if you didn't have a really fine mesh, you'd fall right to the bottom. It would, a big snowshoe wouldn't work.
0: That's a great call. And Lee, um, you are familiar with this style.
2: Well, just looking at some photographs um, online last night of indigenous snowshoes from the Northeast. And they are just works of art. I mean, I think all snowshoes are. Brian's are just gorgeous. These historic um, Wabanaki and other tribe snowshoes that were done are so finely woven. And I figured it was for very, very light powder snow. They're beautiful. Just beautiful. Fawn, thanks so much for calling. Mellie Dunham used to make them with um, little little red sort of um, tassels around the edges of the snowshoes. Even the ones for Perry had tassels on them.
0: I love it. Vaughn, thank you. Um, We'll go to Daniel, who's calling from Madison, New Hampshire. Hi, Daniel. Go ahead.
4: I have been a forester on snowshoes for over 40 years. I go, I I never walk on trails. I just have to walk compass lines and distances through the forest. So what style of snowshoes I wear on a particular day depends upon the weather throughout that day. Um, If it's going to be wet snow, then, as Brian had said, you cannot use rawhide. But I gave up rawhide for that reason, because if it gets wet, you will ruin the snowshoe and it won't work. Um, you generally, I've gone to nylon rope, which was made by Tresley Boldock, an old snowshoe maker on the Kankamekas Highway. Um, it's all about the tip curving up. And ash was the chosen wood for snowshoes because it bends so well when you steam it holds its shape, and it has flexibility so it doesn't break easily. If I'm way out in the woods and I break my snowshoe, I always carry rawhide and I can fix a wooden snowshoe, whereas a plastic snowshoe I wouldn't be able to fix. Plastic snowshoes, when they have a flat surface, the snow will get wet under your foot and build up in a layer so that you have to keep getting the layer out from under your sole. And in a woven snowshoe, the layer will go right through the weave, and, and it won't build up. So it's all about ease of walking. My long Norway snowshoes, about four and a half feet long, are used for distances, and you can, you're almost skiing in them because the tip turns, has a long curve up, and you can just ski along through the snow and cover distance very easily.
0: Well, Daniel, thank you so much for that uh, primer and um, for calling in today. And Lee, I saw you nodding. um, If people want to try different kinds of snowshoes, they can do so up in Norway, right?
2: They can. They're welcome to come to Roberts Farm Preserve during the winter months. We have a a equipped warming hut. It's open one to four weekdays and ten to four on weekends. Free access to skis, boots, poles, and snowshoes. We rely on donations, so we welcome them. But it's a chance for people who haven't, especially with snowshoes, chance for people who haven't ever been on snowshoes to put some on, go take a walk. We've got a lovely dedicated three and a half kilometer snowshoe loop and then a longer, a longer um, straight out and back snowshoe trail right up from Roberts Farm. So it's a good, it's a good beginner place for people to come.
0: Daniel, thanks for calling in. We'll go uh, to Rich, who's calling from Moosehead. Hi, Rich. Go ahead.
4: Hi. Thank you for taking my call, and I just wanted to give uh, information to folks who like snowshoeing that I keep a track on the Little Moose Mountain Ridge uh, Summit Trail all the way across, and it's beautiful views of Moosehead Lake on either side of the trail the whole way, and uh, just give people that information if they're looking for a place for an adventure, and they can stay at the they can either stay or just park as the public at the Moose Mountain Inn Trailhead.
0: Well, thank you so much for that tip, Rich. Um, this is fun. An email from Alexandra uh, responding to the call we had just a little bit ago. Yes to Steve in Camden. I am still using the wood and rawhide snowshoes and toboggans on Maine rivers. My 50th year. But now I lead young College of the Atlantic students in their traditional skills winter camping trips with the very same shoes you were using so isn't that fun so thank you alexandra for writing that an email here from peter could you ask brian what he would advise using to maintain the finish on wooden snowshoes
1: yes um you'd probably want to take your bindings off whatever they are and you can tell the usage uh by looking underneath if you have if if you see the wood, then you definitely uh, know. And the rawhide, you can tell the the varnished. High gloss polyurethane, two coats, sanded lightly in between uh, works fine. You If you use them a lot, you might have to varnish them more often. Once a year is fine. But if you use them a lot, you just touch up the spots that are being rubbed all the time, and that, that'll help preserve your snowshoes for even longer periods of time.
0: We'll go to Gigi, who's calling from Skowhegan. And hi, Gigi, go ahead.
5: Yes. Uh, I didn't get the first part of your program, but I love snowshoeing. And uh, I have a pair of snowshoes that's called the Hunter Snowshoe. And it was made by um, an elderly man many years ago in the, in the uh, early 60s, uh, carrot snowshoe, and what he made the webbing from was neoprene, and I believe like the gentleman said about the ash, I think was the wood, but the neoprene, nothing stuck stuck to it, and his, that particular uh, uh, style of snowshoe, he made the uh, bear paw, and there was another one too, but the hunter snowshoe, he and his wife were invited to go to the Smithsonian Institute to make those snowshoes right on the steps of the institute and that's exactly what he did and also the uh, northwest mounted police have the neoprene snowshoes and he also sold snowshoes to people that wanted to walk on the hot sands of hawaii and i still have those snowshoes i've got three pair i got one for my brother he wanted the bear paw and uh... Uh, and uh, and I got two for myself because I said if I want somebody to snowshoe, they probably don't have it. Now they don't have an excuse.
0: There you go. Well, Gigi, thanks for your call, and, and I can tell uh, Brian's laughing. Do you know about these, Brian?
1: Yeah, neoprene, um, the thing is with neoprene, uh, the ice will really uh, play havoc on it and, and chop it up quite a bit. It's not like tough dry rawhide and it's hard to tighten that like rawhide you pre-stretch it and it'll, when it dries it pulls and holds it together better to me uh and the neoprene does last a long time and if you're careful i mean you know that that's fine that that works
0: well great Gigi. thanks for calling and sharing your experience and knowledge An email here from Mary Ellen. When I was a child in Auburn in the 1950s, parades had groups of snowshoe clubs with French Canadian names. Colorful costumes were a crowd favorite. Surprised that no one called in about them. We had snowshoes made in Norway. My folks had the Norway diner there in the 1940s. So um, Lee, the parades of groups of snowshoe clubs, this is part of Norway, uh, Maine's heritage.
2: It certainly is. And in 1949, the International Snowshoe Convention was held in Norway, Maine. And ironically that year, it was dry. <laughs> so all of these snowshoers coming in from many provinces in Canada and all over the United States and there wasn't any snow. So what's to be done? We had all of these wood product industries near Main Street, right downtown. They got dump trucks, they filled them with sawdust and they paved Main Street with a whole carpet of sawdust all the way down it so that the sprints and the other races could happen going down Main Street. And the photos are amazing. There were bands, everyone's in their wool outfits. People are on, uh, sitting on roof lines, packing all along Main Street for these races to go on. It was, a, it was very much a social thing. And as I believe Brian was talking about it earlier, these clubs, And some still exist. There's an active one right in Berlin, New Hampshire. The clubs would get together on a regular basis and go on snowshoe walks as well as these competitions. I believe I'm correct in saying some of the social clubs that still persist in or exist in um, Lewiston are kind of remnants of these social the earlier snowshoe clubs.
0: And Brian, is that part of the culture up in Arista County, the, the snowshoe club?
1: no uh the only one i i knew about was in lewiston and i had talked to, uh, just a coincidence i i think they have some kind of little museum over there with wool jackets that were all you know pants and jackets and they even had ribbons and they had mm-hmm. some kind of different things and names on there uh, and there had like hats or whatever you want to call They, they they were all dressed up and there was many groups and they had a king and queen and it was part of a you know catholic or religious uh group uh that would do different things and they had a parade that's the the part i talked to somebody and they were involved in that that makes quite a few years back now
0: and if you'd like to see a really fun picture, look on Maine Collings' Facebook post today, um, a historic picture from Norway, Maine, of uh, women standing next to the giant snowshoe that used to be uh, right on the way into town. And they're stacked up holding uh, in, on a ladder, holding smaller snowshoes. Uh, Lee, you, do you remember that? Were you in Norway when this giant snowshoe greeted people?
2: I was not, but it is one of my dreams, um, Jennifer, to someday have this community have a giant snowshoe somewhere in some artistic nature so that I will get to see that again in Norway, Maine. It really was quite wonderful. When we first started the Snowshoe festival 14 years ago, several of those women on that in that photograph were still alive. And they were very proud of the, the role they played at Tub Snowshoe or at Snowcraft rather. and um, they're, I believe they're all gone now. Yeah.
0: Okay, okay, but for those who of a certain age who are listening right now, they probably remember that there was a giant snowshoe giant snowshoe um, on yeah. the way in. Um, we're gonna go to Joel calling from Brunswick. Joel, we are very tight on time. Go right ahead.
1: I just wanted to put a shout-out to anybody that knew a fellow named Sully Greenwood, who was actually, I believe he was Chester Greenwood's uh, grandson. And Chester invented the earmuffs. And uh, he was from Farmington. He made uh, handmade snowshoes and sold them through L.L. L. Bean and other outlets for a long, long time. And he was a, a customer of my country store that
4: I owned for many years. So I just wanted to, to mention Sully.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Joel, for calling in. Um, Brian, is this somebody you know about?
1: No, but there was, in the in the past, there has been so many snowshoe makers, it was unreal. I'd say every town had at least 10 snowshoe makers, They're either hobby or they did a business or, I don't know, or helped manu- with other manufacturers of snowshoes. There, there used to be so many. It was incredible, Uh there's a big history a lot of people don't realize. Remember when uh, before snowmobiles uh, the only way you'd get around in the snow it was snowshoes. So it was big and and then I think it kind of slowed down and then other things came into being and that's why they a lot of it disappeared.
0: Well, thanks for calling in, Joel. And thank you, Brian, um, for having the last word today. All of our guests, thank you. Brian Theriault, Master Snowshoe Maker with Terrio Snowshoes in Fort Kent. Erica Johnson, Guest Experience and Media Coordinator for Maine Hudson Trails. And Lee Dassler, Development Director for Western Foothills Land Trust, hosting the 14th Annual Snowshoe Festival on February 17th in Norway. Today's sound engineer was Sam Tracy. Our theme song, composed by Mike Jandro. Main Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can sign up for our free newsletter at maincalling.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Main Calling on Maine Public Radio.